bit. My name is Dave, I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, if you missed it, you've actually joined us on week two of a series we kicked off last week called Turn Down the Drama. And the idea behind this series is to try and address some of those things in our lives that create drama, uh, those things that happen that kind of create drama in our lives, and see how we can kind of address those and maybe just turn it down a little bit. So this week, uh, we're going to continue on with that, and I happen to be drinking a, a nice cup of tea here in my Connect mug, and I'm actually obviously drinking it the proper way. It's hot, not iced. That's an abomination. Um, hot tea. I've got some milk, a little bit of sugar, and um, if you want to know how to create some drama, I'll tell you a pretty guaranteed way. Take this and pour it in the harbor, okay? Pour it in the river. You put my tea, yeah, yeah, you put my tea in the harbor and there'll be some drama that will follow. Um, as some of you may be aware of, uh, just over a couple of hundred years ago, uh, some of you rebellious colonials, you took a lot of good tea and you dumped it in the harbor. It was called the Boston Tea Party. I can't think of anything about that that sounds like a party to me, but uh, a lot of tea was dumped in the harbor and that began kind of a chain of events that led up to what we are celebrating this weekend, 200 140 years of freedom from my tyrannical um, ancestors. <laughs> so um, I've decided that for this particular weekend, I'm not sure that I am. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm wondering if Brit should be speaking on the July 4th weekend. So I actually came across a message recently, and uh, it was a sermon that was preached by a pastor who's a bit of a hero of mine. His name's Andy Stanley. He's a pastor down in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he's a fantastic pastor, a great leader. And uh, this time last year at his church, he preached this message on um, our rights and responsibilities as Americans, but as followers of Jesus as well. And I was watching it, and, and you know, we kind of all watch the, the society that we live in today and how things are changing, and you know, the, the landscape may look different than it did to our founding fathers you know, 200 years ago. And he just does a wonderful job of kind of talking about that and talking about how that look, should look today. So I was watching this thing, that'd be a great message to try and um, communicate it, connect, and I realized, you know what? I'm never going to do as good a job as him, and on this July 4th weekend, I think you need to be listening to American anyway. So... Uh, so this morning, we're going to hear that message, okay? So sit back, relax, and check out Mr. Andy Stanley. The thing that I love the most about the United States of America, and the thing that you probably love the most about the United States of America, even though you haven't thought about it in a long time, and none of you have ever thanked God for this, although we should get up every single day, even if you're not a praying person, and say, God, I know we don't talk much, but I want to let you know what I'm grateful for, is this right here, the Bill of Rights. Because most countries don't have a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is essentially, was essentially created to protect our individual freedoms. And the Bill of Rights was the name given to the, it was the collective name for the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution that guaranteed personal rights. And again, most nations, people in most nations do not have individual or personal rights. We take them for granted, we assume them. So real quickly, because you only know about three of these, but you should know all, the, you know all the rights that are your rights as American citizens as a result of the Bill of Rights, this collective name for the first 10 amendments. You have the right to free speech. We love that one. That's why I get to get up here and say whatever I want. And you can say whatever you want back. And you can comment on everybody's blog and use all kind of profanity and talk about their mother and they can block you and you can block them back. And it's just great to be an American, right? 
Freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, we get to gather. I don't have to get a government permission for us to gather as a church. I've been to nations in the world where you have to register with the government and they say, no, we don't think, we've got enough churches. You know, go away, come back some other day, you know, whatever, you know, it depends on what kind of church. We have freedom of religion, okay? And then here's one that took about 180 years to catch on, the freedom um, to bear arms. You get it? Okay, now when I put it up there the way it's actually written the Constitution, it's really even stranger. Check this out. Bear arms. <laughs> now some of you are thinking, aha, that's your agenda. You wanna talk about gun control? No, put your filters away, okay? We're not doing that here, okay? The other thing you have, you have due process. We all have a right to due process. We have a right, this is great for some of you, this is real important, this week to a jury trial, you know? Others of you, you look at jury duty and do we all, does anybody get their little slip? You know, you call the jury duty and go, thank God I'm an American, I get to participate. No, it's like, okay, but this is a privilege. There are countries in the world where there's no jury of your peers. And in many nations, you know, because the United States embraced this, other nations embrace this, big deal. Um, We're free from search and seizure, that's a great thing. We are free because of our Bill of Rights from cruel and unusual punishment. You can't be tortured, you can't be treated the way some people are treated in other countries as a citizen. And here's the best one of all. We are all free from having to quarter soldiers. Should glad that one's in there. Now, this brings up a really important point, and that's this. If the Bill of Rights was written today, it would look different. It would look different. If we were to write the Bill of Rights today, all of us would say, number one Bill of Rights, the right to free Wi-Fi. Wouldn't that be like the first thing in the Bill of Rights, free Wi-Fi for everybody, right? We would for sure put free education because we've come to assume that education should be free for us and our kids. Free, many of you would put free healthcare. Others of you would put free enterprise. Some of you would say, I want freedom from government interference. So if, if, the, if the, the amendments were written today, if the Bill of Rights was written today, it would look a little bit different. Now, the, the guys, the, the group that wrote the Bill of Rights and wrote our constitution, they were so smart. They knew that as times changed, the Bill of Rights and the specifics of the Bill of Rights would need to be adjusted. So they came up with, with, with the Ninth Amendment. Now, probably none of you know what's in the Ninth Amendment. This should be your favorite amendment. The Ninth Amendment is the catch-all amendment. The Ninth Amendment is just in case we left something off the list, just claim the Ninth Amendment. They knew, they knew that eventually future generations may look at the Bill of Rights and say, oh, these are the only things that U.S. citizens have individual freedom regarding. So they came up with the Ninth Amendment to say, hey, there may be other things in the United, in the United States of America, there are other individual rights that go beyond what's listed. And so here's what the, the Ninth Amendment says. It says the, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights, the ones we just talked about, shall not be construed to deny or disparage other, talking about other rights, retained by the people. So that's just a lot of gobbledygook language to say, hey, we're not listing all the individual rights in these, these, these amendments. We're just listing some specific ones, but there are other ones that go beyond the ones that are listed. Isn't this fascinating? So anyway, if we were to rewrite the Ninth Amendment in our 21st century vernacular and were to you know, write it the way that we express it as we think about our individual rights, here's what it might look like. We would write it this way. That we have the right to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it doesn't interfere with anyone else's amended Ninth Amendment rights. Because that's how we think as Americans. I'm an American, I can do what I want. I have a right, I have a right, I have a right. And next time somebody you know, says, hey, you don't have a right, you just declared the Ninth Amendment. They'll go, the what? The Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment gives me all the rights that the other amendments didn't mention specifically. Now, here's the problem. 
Every parent knows this, every parent knows this. If you give someone rights, but you don't couple those rights with responsibility, things go horribly wrong. If you give people rights, but you don't harness those rights with responsibility, things go horribly wrong. Did anyone ever, and it's okay, we're in church, so don't lie, and we're all sinners, so it's okay to raise your hand. Did anyone ever have the car keys taken away from you when you were a teenager living at home, anybody? Like, why are you so shy? It's like, be proud to take them away, yeah. And so what happened? You're old enough to drive, the government gave you a license, dad said or mom said, okay, here's the keys to the car. And then you came in late or you came in with, you know, a tire not exactly right or wasn't even the right tire. Where'd you even get that tire? You know, whatever your deal, something was dented or bumped or, or you didn't do something else at home. And what did they do? They said, you have, you've had the right to drive the car, but we're removing the right because if you're irresponsible, we remove the right. Okay, how about this one? Did anyone, and this is so odd, did anyone ever have their door removed from their bedroom? <laughs> like, are y'all related? You're related? So your parents took, like, oh, you're married. Well, that's related, yeah, yeah. I asked the wrong question, okay. <clears throat> but clearly you were raised in similar households. They took the door. Have you ever seen this? You go to someone's house, you go upstairs and just like, hey, you know, there's no door on that bedroom. Yeah, we took their door. Like what kind of pun, I, I get nailing it shut with them in there, but taking the door, you know, don't share that with anyone. So anyway, yeah, so what happens? Well, you know, you lost the right to privacy. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go up there and hide in your room, if you're gonna go up there and, you know, scribble on the walls, or I don't know how you lose your door, we're gonna just take the door. If you're gonna slam it, we take it, it's right. Because every parent knows, we get this, every parent knows with rights come responsibilities. In other words, individual rights must be coupled with individual responsibility or things go bad. In a nation where there are rights without responsibility, it results in anarchy. That liberty without responsibility actually undermines liberty. That liberty without responsibility ultimately undermines liberty. That liberty, as we're gonna see, can gobble up liberty. That if everybody demands their individual rights with no consideration for other people and without taking responsibility for the outcome of their liberty, ultimately, everybody loses their liberty. Which brings us to a really important question, and I'm sure you're way ahead of me. So why is there no bill of responsibility? Why are there bill of rights in the Constitution, but there's no bill of responsibility? And here's why. Because the authors of the Constitution and our founding fathers, and this is throughout their documents, this is throughout their letters to one another, their letters to their wives, you know, throughout everything they wrote, and they, were, they wrote so much. The, the founders, the authors of the Bill of Rights assumed, this is so important, they assumed moral guardrails that would provide a, sort of a, an, an impetus for personal responsibility. They, they assumed there were these moral ethical guardrails that everybody understood and that everybody would stay between the guardrails so they didn't really need to, ex, to expand on be responsible because they just assumed a level of responsibility among the, the people of America. And this made perfect sense because there was a bit of a foxhole mentality. They had just come through the Revolutionary War. We're no longer English. You know, we're no longer French. You know, we are Americans. There was a value system that was throughout the colonies. They weren't all Christians, but they all pretty much believed in God. And if they defined God as God of the Old or the New Testament. So there was, there was synergy around a moral code, an understanding of what it meant to take care of your neighbor. And in those days, you had to take 
take care of your neighbor because if you didn't take care of your neighbor, your neighbor wasn't gonna take care of you. So there were some assumptions. In fact, throughout the literature of the founding fathers, you, you find three assumptions that surface and here they are real quickly. First of all, there was a consensus of conscience. People generally believed the same things were right and the same things were wrong. There was a consensus around what was right and what was wrong. There was a consensus around divine accountability that the United States, the, the founding fathers and the, the, the colonists and the people who came through the Revolutionary War, there was a sense that God had ordained the United States exist, that God was behind us, that God answered our prayers, that God has given us liberty from England. And there was gratitude to God and a sense of personal and national accountability to God. And then thirdly, a little more complicated, there was a sense of there was individual expression was governed by concern for other individuals. That when it came to the Bill of Rights or when it came to individual rights, individual rights were always expressed with concern of, for other people. There was no, there wasn't a, this sense that we have now of this is my right and it doesn't matter how it impacts other people. It doesn't matter how it impacts my community or my school or my neighbors or the people I work with. This is my right. There was a sense of, hey, my individual rights rights aren't simply about me. My individual rights, I'm gonna express those by protecting the rights of other individuals. That was just a different mentality. Now, again, this is throughout the literature of that, that colonial period and that, you know, the period of the war and following during the time of the writing of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The, the most famous example of this, the one that we all studied in school, is actually in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. And here it is again, you know, you've heard it or read it a thousand times, but Listen, listen to the significance of these words and look for the way they tied the divine to the personal. Here, here's what they wrote. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That means when you read the rest of it, you'll go, well, duh, well, duh. I mean, everybody just knows this. I can't even believe you're saying it. This is just assumed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's like, right, I mean, everybody knows that. Or do we have to write this, that all men are created? I mean, how, how else would we get here? Everybody's created, we, we got that. That they are endowed by their creator, here we go, with certain unalienable rights. So where did your individual right come from? They would say, well, your individual right came from your individual God. Your individual rights came from God. That We don't have rights because the government gives us rights. We have rights because God gave us rights, these, these rights actually came from God, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There was an assumed, this is so important, there was an assumed connection between God and rights, that God, not government, was the one that bestowed upon American citizens these individual rights, which meant that we are all, that we are all accountable to God, don't miss this, we are all accountable to God for how we exercise our individual rights. They believe that we as individuals and as a nation were accountable to God for how we exercised our individual rights. Now, John Adams, and I picked John Adams because John Adams was against slavery and John Adams apparently never owned a slave. John Adams, who was the second president of the United States, vice president for George Washington a couple of terms, wrote so much stuff. Here's what, here's what John Adams wrote. Think about the significance of these words. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Our constitution was written, made, created only for people who are moral, that is they believe there was a moral sense of right and wrong that stood outside of their personal understanding of right and wrong, a moral and religious people. In other words, this constitution was written with the assumption of morals and religion. And listen to the second half. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. 
In other words, if there is no moral consensus the sense and sense of divine accountability, this grand experiment of personal freedom will fail. If there is no sense of morality that stands outside a human being, and if there's no sense of divine accountability, this experiment in freedom will fail. If we simply give people individual rights, but there's no sense of individual accountability to God, this experiment in freedom will fail. Liberty will devour liberty. Eventually, my rights will compete with your rights. And when my rights compete with your rights, who's to say who's right? When rights collide, the courts decide. It rhymes, let's just say that together, ready? When rights collide, the courts decide. That was not the intent of the founding fathers. Because the only way for rights, when rights collide, if the courts are gonna decide, it means that suddenly our government must create law after law after law after law after law after law to, to, to address every single possible eventuality. Do you know why we have so many laws? Because the laws have to cover every single eventuality because American citizens are constantly looking for loopholes. Aha, that one's not covered, I'm free. Aha, you didn't say it exactly right, you gotta let me go. Aha, that wasn't the way it was supposed to be done. You can't be done, you can't penalize me. Aha, aha, aha. And in a culture where everybody's looking for a loophole because their only accountability is to government and to written law, Ultimately, the courts have to decide. Now, here's the problem with law. Let me talk about law for a second. I'm, glad, I'm so glad that we're a nation of, of law. I, I totally get that, but here's the problem. The law represents, for the most part, the law represents the minimum requirement. The law, the law answers the question, how low can I go? Okay, how fast can I drive without getting pulled over? How fast can I drive and get pulled over, but they're not gonna give me a ticket? How fast can I drive? They're gonna pull me over and give me a ticket, but not take me to jail. How fast can I drive and not take my license? How fast? In other words, where's the line? Where's the limit? And what happens is when there's only law and there's no sense of accountability, divine accountability, personally or nationally or corporately, we go as low as we can possibly go. Because after all, we wanna know exactly where the line is. How far can I go without being arrested? How far can I go without being in prison? How, you know, how flexible are those laws? How flexible are those standards? What can I get by with? That's the answer, that's the question. Those are the questions the law answers. But the law is powerless to do the most important thing. The law is powerless. The law doesn't inspire greatness. The law can't inspire excellence and the law can't inspire or create virtue. It can only answer the question, how low can you go? Traffic laws are important, but traffic laws do not create courteous drivers. Tax laws, tax laws cannot make you generous or financially responsible. Civil laws don't make you civil. Neighborhood association standards don't make you a good neighbor, right? DUI laws don't inspire you to sobriety. And every morning I wake up and I read the laws about drinking under the influence. I'm like, I'm just so inspired. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna, it just makes me, no. Uh, listen, assault and battery laws won't make you a good husband and a marriage license won't make you a good wife and free speech won't make you, the, you know, the, the, the right to free speech won't make you kind. That laws are powerless. Laws are powerless to inspire. You have the right to sleep with whoever you want to, whenever you want to, as long as they are a consenting adult. That is not against the law. There is no law that will inspire you 
to marital faithfulness. There is no law that will inspire you to fidelity because that's not the, that's not the job of the law and the law is powerless to do that very important, play that very important role in society. So where does that come from? As a result, as a result, here's the bad of all the bad news. As a result, here's where we are. We have individual rights regulated by law. Individual rights, free to do whatever you want, say what you want, you know, sleep with who you want, run around with who you want, do what you want, you know, Facebook, be crude, be, you know, take off your clothes, you know, you know, protest the soldier's funeral, heckle the president's speech. I mean, we got all kinds of, you know, incredible laws. But this, this is what I don't want you to miss. This is a recipe. This is a recipe for you and for me to be as selfish as we can legally be. And in this system, rights become nothing more. Rights become nothing more than an exercise of power. And at the end of the day, the culture in which we will find ourselves, the culture in which we are finding ourselves is simply this. The rich will always rule the poor. Women will continue to become more and more of a commodity. Children will always be the victims. If it's legal, it's moral. If it's legal, it's moral. If it's legal, it's moral. Law informs conscience. Well, how do I know how bad I'm supposed to feel about something? Well, what does the law say? And everybody looks for a loophole. So God bless you and God bless the United States of America. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. It's pretty sad, isn't it? And here's the, here's the zinger. And maybe you'd be surprised to hear me say this. Maybe you disagree and I hope I'm wrong. But I'm convinced, like many of you are, that our legal system is permanently, our legal system is permanently decoupled from divine and moral absolutes. It's permanent. We're not going back. We're not gonna go back to the colonies. We're not gonna go back to the days of the colonies where everybody kind of went to some sort of church and believed in God and their conscience bothered them when they did stuff wrong. We're gone. That train has left the station. We are permanently decoupled from a sense of divine and moral absolutes as a nation. But there is hope. And the hope is you. The hope is about 60 to 70% of the citizens of the United States of America consider themselves to be some kind of Christian. And our conduct, our conduct as Christians has more potential to bring about more change than any candidate we elect or any law that we pass. Because all the law is gonna do is define more clearly how low we can go and all our candidates and all of our government leaders, all they can do is enforce the law. The behavior of Christians in this nation has more potential to take us back to a place where we're not simply relegated by law with no sense of divine accountability. The only hope for our nation, it's not who we elect, although you need to vote. It's not the laws that are passed, although you need to pay attention. Ultimately, it is the behavior of the people and there are enough Christians in in this land to take us back to a happier place in spite of who gets elected and in spite of which party that you're a part of. And let me prove to you why I know that to be the case. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul, we talk about him a lot here if you're, if you're new to one of our churches. The Apostle Paul who wrote letters that became part of the New Testament, these valuable, valuable letters. We call them books of the Bible, but they're not really books. They're ancient letters that were preserved because they were so valuable. People valued them and they copied and made copies and they survived antiquity, which is just amazing. And in one of these letters, he's writing to a group of churches in Galatia, a Roman province, you know, Greek thinking people. 
And he was writing to Gentile Christians, which is most of us, unless you're Jewish. And if you're Jewish, wow, you're kind of related to Jesus, which I think is awesome. You may not, but I think it's kind of awesome. Anyway, we, we all love Jesus. And so he, he's writing to Gentiles and there was some confusion about their relationship to the Old Testament. And they were being taught by some people, hey, you gotta do the entire Old Testament. You gotta keep the entire Old Testament law, the, you know, the dietary laws, what you wear, you know, where you go, Sabbath, all this stuff. So he's writing them a letter explaining to them, no, 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 no. Now that you are Christians and you're Jesus followers, you are not under the Old Testament law. You're under a different law. You're to, you approach life in a different way. And so in making his case, he makes a statement that is so relevant for us today. And I believe it gives us direction in terms of how we should respond to our nation and our nation's laws. And the fact that our nation has permanently decoupled from any kind of you know, biblical conscience because we're, you know, we have lots of people from lots of different ways of thinking. And we don't wanna go back. We're not trying to force our religion on anybody. But ultimately he gives us direction as Christians as to how we should respond don't miss this, how we should respond to our personal freedoms. When all of a sudden we realize I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Do you remember guys, the first time you got in your mama's car and nobody was with you and you just got your driver's license? Does anybody else remember this? And you looked at the speedometer and the speedometer went up to 120. <laughs> and you're thinking, I wonder, you know, so there I am in my mom's four door beige Catalina with a 454 four barrel. Remember that, you know, 455 four barrel, barreling down 285, really watching the speedometer more because baby, I'm free. Nobody in the car with me, I can do whatever I want. Well, that's what we all do with freedoms. As soon as we're free, our natural inclination is to use those freedoms for personal advancement or personal benefit. And the apostle Paul comes along and says, wait, 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 wait. You're Christians. You have been given a stewardship of freedom and as Christians, it is so important how you respond to your freedom. And in this little piece of this letter, he tells us how we're to respond to freedom. And I'm telling you, if just the Christians, now if you're not a Christian, you can do this anyway. You, get, you can do it for free. You don't have to be a Christian to do this. But if you're a Christian, this is what we're called to. And this would make all the difference in the world. Here's what he says. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, talking to the Christians in Galatia, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And then here's the command. But do not use your freedom, your stewardship of freedom, to indulge the flesh, because he knows me and he knows you. 2,000 years later, he knows what you're up to. He knows that when everybody's away and you can watch anything you want to on television, you go as low as you can possibly go. He knows that when everybody's gone and nobody's gonna make you do your homework anymore, you go as low as you can possibly go. When nobody's looking, you do the kinds of things that you only do when nobody's looking. Our natural tendency is to abuse our freedom and to consume it on ourselves. He goes, wait, 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 wait. But you're Jesus followers, you're Christians. Do not leverage your freedom for your personal benefit to the neglect of what God has called you to do. Don't ask the question, what can I get by with? Don't ask the question, how low can I go? Don't ask the question, where's the line? Don't ask the question, well, is there a law against it? Instead, he says, this is so powerful. Imagine a day in America where the Christians did this. He says, instead, instead, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Now, here's the thought. No one can make you do that. 
There is no law that can force you to serve another person. The law will not inspire you to serve another person. The law will not force you to serve another person. The law will simply draw a line on how selfish you can be. And Paul says, look, God has called us to leverage our freedom and to use our freedom to do something for other people. You have a right not to, but you have the opportunity to. And then, he takes us to one of the most common and well-known phrases in all of the Bible. It started, it was first stated in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. Jesus leveraged it to say, this is one of the most important things I'll ever say. And the apostle Paul swings back around about 25 years later to say, this is still at the epicenter of the thing that should drive our behavior as Christians. He says, for the entire law, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just when you get up in the morning and you think about how free you are and can say whatever I want, do whatever I want, assemble wherever I want, use my money any way I want, I am free, I just, I am free. I'm gonna leverage my freedom to love my neighbor as myself. I'm gonna do unto others all day long as I would have others do unto me. I'm gonna treat my girlfriend the way I would want a boy to treat my younger sister. I'm gonna treat my wife the way that one day I hope my daughter's husband treats her. I'm gonna respond to my husband the way that hopefully one day a young lady will respond to my son when they're married. I'm gonna treat the people I work with the way I wish I had been treated when I worked at that other company. I'm gonna treat the people who work for me the way I wish my boss had treated me. I'm gonna treat my boss the way that hopefully one day someone would treat me when I'm the boss. I'm gonna look at everybody in my life through the lens of how would I wanna be treated and I'm just gonna do that. Imagine one single day in America where everybody did that. Do you know what? This is why Paul is so brilliant. If everybody did that, there would almost be no need for any of our laws. Because when a nation looks up and asks the question, how good can I be? All the detail, all the fine print becomes irrelevant. Because when I leverage and you leverage your freedom for the sake of the other people around you, the world becomes instantly a better place. The policeman, all they have to do all day long is direct traffic. And it'd be so frustrating. It's like, come on, come on, come on. No, I'm waiting for them. I want that. Come on. No, I want them to go first. You first, you first, you first. No, you first. The policeman's like, come on. Hey, sir, look, there's a mile of traffic. I know, but I just don't want to be first. <laughs> when that, here's an apple, sir. I got an apple for you. I thought about you this morning because I knew you're going to be out here directing traffic because everybody's letting everybody else go first, you know? And you say, Andy, that's silly. No, listen, that is basic Christianity. Now here's the most, here, this is something, you should read the Bible. Even if you're not, you don't think it's all true, that's okay. You don't read anything because you think it's true. You read things because you think it's helpful or interesting. And this is helpful and interesting. This is amazing. The apostle Paul, look up here, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, he looks into the future and he says, hey, 21st century American church, if you don't get this right, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you decide to leverage your individual rights for only you as an individual, if you forget that you are part of a community, if you forget that you are to leverage your rights for everybody, the sake of everybody else in the community, if you forget that you have been called by God to do unto others as God through Christ has done for you, let me tell you what it's gonna look like. 
Here's what happens when life becomes all about your individual rights. This is unbelievable. Here's what he says. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. If you bite and devour each other, well, that's mine. Well, that's mine. Well, I was here first. Well, that's my right. Well, you know, the law says I'm getting an attorney. Well, I'm going to get an attorney. I'm getting two attorneys. I'm getting a female attorney, okay? I mean, you know, I'm going you know, to find the meanest attorney. It's like, you know, you know, sue early and sue often. Sue early and sue often. You know, that's kind of our whole thing, right? He says, look, if, if you decide, if you decide, if this whole thing devolves into individual rights, every man for himself, every woman for herself, every family for themselves, every community for themselves, he says, let me just tell you where it goes. You will become like dogs, biting and devouring one another. And at the end of the day, you will be destroyed by each other. You see, our, our biggest concern in our nation right now, our, our, the greatest concern, and I get this, I don't think we shouldn't be concerned about it. Our greatest concern is what's gonna happen to us as a nation from outside forces, from people who don't like America. Americans, Americans are America's biggest problem, not people from the outside. Because we undermine our own liberty when we leverage our liberty for us alone. As long as it's my individual bill of rights and my rights crush your rights. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is why, this is why the, the, the founding fathers warned us and warned us and warned us. At the end of the day, we undermine this experiment in freedom and this experiment in liberty. And here's the thing. We have more rights than any other nation on the planet and we have more rights than any other nation that's ever been on the planet. And apart from a moral compass, those rights will become our undoing. We will devour ourselves in our quest to be free as individuals. But the church and only the church can turn that around. Not by becoming a unified voting block, by becoming a unified obedience block where we wake up every single day and decide I am going to leverage my freedom for the sake of protecting your freedom rather than simply exercising my own. Imagine a day like that in America. I'm gonna give you four little statements that are applications. These aren't specific, but just to kind of get your mind going. What does that look like? It looks like this. That you decide I'm gonna do what's just, not what I can justify. You do what's just, not what you can justify. I'm not gonna ask how low can I go or what can I get by with. I'm gonna ask how high can I reach and how can I help? How high can I reach and how can I help? I would like for all of us to say, because some of you haven't said this in so long, okay? I want us to say together, how can I help? Ready? How can I help? If you would like for everyone that you work with at work to pass out, just walk in tomorrow and say, how can I help? Oh, I don't do that around here. See, around here, I help myself and you help yourself. And I try to help myself to some of what you're helping yourself to, but we don't help each other. Now you just walk in tomorrow and say, hey, hey, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? Husbands, I'm telling you, you have to make sure your wife's laying down. Honey, how can I help? It's like, who are you? Someone stole my husband's body. Teenage kids, if you'd like to get control of the family, you wanna control your parents? Here's the simplest way to control your parents. Mom, what can I do to help? Dad, what can I do to help? Mom, what can I do to help? It's like, no, no teenager asked that. Why? Because it's all about me, myself, and I. And our heavenly father says, look, I look down on a sin-sick world and I ask the question, what can I do to help? 
And the only way to help them was to send them a savior. It cost me my son. The least you can do is to turn to one another. I'm not asking you to die for anybody. I'm just asking you to ask the question, what can I do to help? Because it's not just about what I can justify. I wanna do what's just. Do what's responsible, not simply what's permissible. Do what's responsible, not what can you get by with, not what can I get by with, but what's the most responsible thing? Now look, look up here. If you are not willing to take responsibility for the potential outcome of a decision, then don't do it. If you are not willing to take responsibility for the potential outcome of a decision, don't do it. Somebody has to become responsible for your irresponsibility. I mean, how many years are we gonna talk about the debt of this country? It's, you know, we call, we call it kicking the can down, the kicking the can, kicking the can, kicking the can. Look, here's the deal. We as a generation are having to take responsibility for a previous generation's irresponsibility. It's an individual thing as well. If you are responsible, eventually someone has to take responsibility for your irresponsibility. So let's just stop with that and decide as Christians, we don't do that. You're not gonna hear me say, that's my right. You're gonna hear me say, that's my responsibility. That's my responsibility. Now, I know you've never said that out loud, so let's just practice that one too. Ready? That's my response. Yeah, that's like, whoa. <sighs> if I say that again, don't make me say that again. One more time, we're gonna emphasize my. Ready? That's my Yeah, try that one at work. That's my responsibility. I own that. Well, we don't do that here. We argue and we get attorneys. No, no, I'm just gonna own it. That's my responsibility. Third, do what's moral, not what's modeled. Come on. Listen, listen. Immorality, and, and you can define immorality any way you want to. You just, you just decide whatever you think immorality is, you just define it for yourself. I and mean, this isn't a message on how to, what immorality is. I just want you to think. Whatever is immorality to you, the way you define it. Immorality, by your definition, you know this, you're smart people, is undermining the integrity of our country. We cannot afford financially, we cannot afford financially to continue on our moral, immoral path. It's impossible. At some point, a generation has to stand up and say, hey, it doesn't matter how low we can go. It doesn't matter if it's illegal. We are going to embrace, there's gonna be a consensus of morality and we're gonna do this for other people's sake and for the next generation's sake. We are done taking our moral cue from the people around us. You do what's moral, not what's modeled. Because in your community, whatever your community is, and in the world in which you live, you are already seeing, you are already paying for a culture that has said, I can do what I want, with whom I want, when I want, as long as it's legal and there are no consequences. There are consequences, you are part of a community and it costs all of us and ultimately it undermines all our freedom. And if you're not a Christian, I have, I, I have no right to ask you to do anything or no right to you know, expect you to do anything. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the, the sexual ethic of the New Testament is so clear. You honor God with your body. You don't sexualize a relationship outside of marriage and you don't allow yourself to be imprisoned or mastered by anything. And you're a better person and your community's a better place. And suddenly we become the models instead of modeling ourselves after culture around us. Come on, simple. And the last one, and this is sort of the catch-all, it's just honor God. And that's complicated, honor God. What does that mean? It means every time you make a decision, you ask what would be most honoring to God. What's well, deep, what's well, deep? What would be most honoring to God? 
And you know what's interesting? Regardless of how much you know the Bible, regardless of whether or not you grew up in church, you know the answer to this question intuitively. It is self-evident. And this question points us back to the founder's belief that individual rights assume individual accountability to God. Now, the thing is, every once in a while, we get a national glimpse of what this looks like. And just, you know, really literally days ago, we all had a ringside seat to what this looks like in the real world. In the city of Charleston, in a courtroom in the city of Charleston where the men and women whose family members have been taken away violently and what was nothing other than a pure act of racism. I mean, there's no other way to define that. And they sat in the courtroom and one by one, they forgave the man who changed their future forever. That was not being a good American citizen. That was being a Christian. No law could require that. In fact, if they had sat in the courtroom and cussed him out, we would have all thought, yeah, I get it. The thing that took our breath away is they didn't act like citizens. They didn't act like men and women with rights. They responded as men and women who had been forgiven by God and somehow had internalized that to the point where they could say, you know what? My heavenly father has forgiven me. I have no right to do anything but forgive you. And it was staggering. The husband of Myra Thompson put it this way. He said this, He said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. But we would like to take this opportunity to ask you to repent, to repent, to confess and give your life to the one no matter, to give your life to the one who matters most. Christ, okay, wait, 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 time out, time out, time out. Anthony, whoa, whoa, before we go there. You're a Christian, right? I'm a Christian, that's why I'm doing this. Okay, but you realize like, if he becomes a Christian, the way you believe, he goes to heaven. You sure you want this guy in heaven? You sure you want this guy that murdered people that you knew in your community? You want him in heaven? Seriously, think about this. You're you're right here in the courtroom asking him to repent of his sins, to confess his sins, and to put his faith in your savior? Are you kidding? What is that? That's not good citizenship. That's not how low can I go. That's not what do I deserve, and that's not what what can I get by with. That's a group of people that understood that their ultimate accountability was to their father in heaven and it took our breath away. He said, so, this is unbelievable. So he can change you. He can change your ways no matter what happened to you. Empathy, sympathy for this guy. And you, you, you will be okay. Imagine a day like that in America. We can do that because it is Christianity 101. Do for others what your heavenly father has done for you. Imagine a day in America where that kind of ethic and that kind of morality push through the clutter. I love the Bill of Rights. I love the fact that we're a nation of law, but we can do better and we must choose to do better. And God has called those of us who are his children to do much better because we have been called, we have been commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
We've been commanded to do unto others as God in Christ has done unto us. And maybe more specifically, and maybe more broadly, we have been called to leverage our individual rights for the benefit of other individuals. We have been called to leverage our individual rights for the sake of other individuals so that our liberty will not be devoured, so that we do not destroy ourselves in our effort to protect ourselves. Last thing, and I'm done. This is so amazing to me. John Adams again. John Adams, he looks into the future and he sees you and he sees me. Seriously. And he writes a letter. He writes us a letter from the past. John Adams is so cool. He died on July the 4th, 1826 or 1829, the same day as Thomas Jefferson. They died on the same day. They were friends and they were enemies and they were friends again. He died on July 4th and he wrote you a letter. And here's what he said. He said, posterity, that's you. That's future generations, people I'll never meet in places I'll never see, an age that I won't be able to imagine. Future Americans, hear me. You will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. Now you'll read about it in history books, you'll see some black and white drawings, you'll see some movies, but you'll never smell it. You'll never experience the fear and the dread that we experienced. You won't have had to sit through hours and hours and hours of meetings as we wordsmith this document that would set the direction for a whole nation. You, have, you don't have any idea how much it cost us physically. You don't know what it cost our family. You have no idea what it cost us to secure your freedom. And then he says this, I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. So I got an idea. Red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. Republicans and Democrats, you know why you're a Republican? You're a Republican because of what you've heard and what you've experienced, where you're educated. You know why you're a Democrat? Because of the way you're raised, what you've experienced and what you've heard. You know why you're a libertarian? Because you can't make up your mind. No, you're a libertarian. Because <laughs> you don't ever want to win an election. No, you're a li- libertarian. Because look up here, you're a libertarian because you have, because you, you'd like to stand up now and, and share. Because I understand this, you have a unique view of freedom. We all do. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to squander it? Because John Adams said, look, If you think for a minute, these individual rights that we are handing to you can survive a nation that gives up on morality and gives up on God, you are kidding yourself. We created the document. We know what it hinges on. You dare not turn your back on the divine or this experiment and liberty will fail. And we're not gonna go back to a time and place where everybody in America is a Christian. We don't even need to do that. But what must happen is those of us who name Jesus as our Lord and Savior must step up to the basic command to love our neighbor as ourself and to wake up every single day grateful for our individual rights and then decide I am going to steward them well by leveraging them not simply for myself, but for my community and the people around me, because my father in heaven gave up his individual freedom when he sent his son to this sin-filled world to answer the question, what can I do for you? And gave his life for my failure and my sin.
let's make good use of what has been given, given, given to us as Americans. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. God bless you. You know, when I watched that, I thought, man, this is just some great uh, teaching there for us to follow. I know I wouldn't do as good a job communicating that. He used the phrase, Americans are the problem with Americans. I knew I couldn't get away with saying that, especially on this weekend. I think that would incite a reenactment of the original uh, overthrow of the Brits. So, um, but man, what a way to turn down the drama in our lives. If we would aspire to live that high calling, especially if we're followers of Jesus here this morning, to make a difference in the world, to love our neighbors as, uh, as God loved us, to make that difference. Will you pray with me? Father, what a wonderful weekend to celebrate the freedom that we have as Americans. The freedom that came with a great price and that has been uh, fought for at a great price since then as well. And we don't uh, take that for granted, Lord. This weekend is a celebration weekend for the great things that happened over 200 years ago and the great things that have happened since then to make this the great nation that it is. But the truth is, Lord, just like Andy said in his message, for all these great things that come about out of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and the laws of the land, Father, The reality is that although they all help make this nation great, what truly makes a nation is the people of that nation. Lord, there are so many things that we read about in the news and see on TV that that just break our hearts, Lord, and we, we look to this direction to fix things and that direction and to politics, to government, to uh, leaders, Father, but the reality is it starts with us. I pray everyone here this morning, Lord, who is a follower of Jesus, would wake up tomorrow morning on the 4th of July and just realize that I can make a difference in my world. The way I live, the way I um, portray Jesus, the way I represent Jesus in my life can make a difference in my family, my community, my neighborhoods, my city, and ultimately this country. So thank you, Lord, for freedom. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you. And thank you, Lord, for those of us who um, choose not to squander that freedom, but to use that to to be the greatest that we can be. Uh, We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a fantastic Independence Day tomorrow. Enjoy your holiday with your friends and family. We'll see you back here next Sunday morning. God bless.